Hi, folks. We are so glad that you're listening to Our Body Politic. If you have time, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other listeners find us, and we read them for your feedback. We'd also love you to join in financially supporting the show if you are able. You can find out more at ourbodypolitic.com slash donate. We are here for you, with you, and because of you. Thank you. This is Our Body Politic. I'm Farai Chidea. Americans are mourning yet another deadly mass shooting by an active and self-proclaimed racist and white supremacist. Last weekend, an 18-year-old white gunman shot and killed 10 people and injured three more at a supermarket in a majority black neighborhood in Buffalo, New York. This attack follows a painfully familiar playbook, a young, radicalized white male explicitly moved by fears of, quote, white replacement, commits acts of terror on an unexpecting community. We have seen this with the murders at Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, among many others. We're going to talk to black journalists from Buffalo later in the show, but we wanted to start with a member of Congress who's been looking at the chessboard of politics through experiences including being a combat veteran, the child of immigrants, and an Ivy League graduate, and who's plugged in on the rhetorical warfare that played a role in both the insurrection and the killings in Buffalo. He's U.S. Representative Ruben Gallego of Arizona's 7th Congressional District, which includes Phoenix and its western suburbs. Welcome, Representative Gallego. Thank you. So I have to admit, what caught my eye recently was your interview about the insurrection. And uh, you were pretty blunt that despite being unarmed and some members of that mob being armed, you were determined to save your life and help your colleagues save theirs. So when did you first know that your life could be in danger? I think um, when I started seeing the Capitol Police try to grab any piece of furniture and try to barricade the door. Mm. Uh, I, I had already gone to the point where I knew that I had to get ready. And my, my, my usual MO is that I always rather be ready and wrong than wrong and not ready. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that comes with when it comes to anything in life, to be honest. And um, I had already heard, obviously, from the police that, you know, they had, the place had been breached. I had heard gas canisters going off. We had heard the pounding at the door. And so that that, you know, kind of put me into overdrive. And you talked about trying to organize your fellow members of Congress to use things like pens to defend themselves. How did you present this as an option? Well, I I turned to a couple of members um, that were standing by me and I first, you know, had to kind of tell them to get into the moment. And, and this is not a very uncommon thing. One of the things that I discovered in war, especially when we had some replacements come in after a couple of our uh, first group of guys had died, was that the first time they saw combat, they couldn't actually fully accept that what was happening, right? right? And so, you know, a lot of time human nature is not necessarily fight or flight, it's just freezing. Or you try to rationalize that whatever is happening is not happening. Uh, and so I turned to my members uh, of Congress and I told them to take off their jackets because we were going to have to run or fight and you didn't want to have a jacket on in the meantime. And a couple of them said, like, well, why? Uh, this is the safest place. I'm like, it's, it's not. Uh, you know, we're, we're not in a safe space. Uh, you need to get ready for that. And I just started telling them, like, you need to start looking for weapons, like anything we can break apart, uh, anything we could use to stab people. We're, we're, we're going to be in a situation where we're going to need to defend ourselves. 
I went out and I covered the peaceful uh, part of the Stop the Steal rally, but I knew it was going to get violent because of my background in researching this and doing field reporting. And I did not want to be there for that moment. But do you feel there was a failure of intelligence or communications? And if so, who do you put in the driver's seat for that? I think there was a failure in creativity more than anything uh, else. I think there was a lot, of, a lot of intel out there. I just believe that there was a portion of the Capitol Police uh, management that just did not understand the full complexity of what was happening. And also, like, wasn't creative uh, about the situation that they were going to potentially meet. I think if if you're a planner like I am, you always look at all the situations that you, that could arrive, right? Uh, if you look at a you know a situation from a like law enforcement or military perspective, you should have planned for the worst at all times. And I think there was a leadership failure in that regard. That their thought process was something akin to just a normal protest when they should have been uh, really planning for the absolute most. Now, obviously, there was some steps that were done correctly. There there was some you know, request for the National Guard to be ready. That was denied at the higher level. I think there was a delay purposely by Donald Trump to delay the deployment of the National Guard to uh, the Capitol. But there was just a general lack of real creativity and understanding what potentially these, at that point, protesters, but eventually insurrectionists could be doing. Every day you show up for work in the halls of Congress you end up working with people who either poo-pooed the insurrection or refused to impeach former President Trump on the charge of inciting it, or both. And now we're watching more information leak out about revelations from the House Select Committee investigation. So how do you personally deal with working with people who didn't or sometimes don't view the insurrection as a threat? Well, I don't really work with some of the hardcore insurrectionists, uh, and that's what I call these members of Congress, the ones that uh, deny that January 6th even happened the way it did, the ones that deny uh, that there was a free and legitimate election or, or try to proclaim and still proclaim that it was a stolen election. There are some people that I do work with that voted to decertify the election, but that was largely their only thing they did. And, and I've made my separate piece with them on that. Some of it is tough to swallow, but it was their constitutional right to vote that way. Uh, I disagree with how they voted, but you know there was nothing illegal with what they did. But if you were there inciting the crowd, if you were encouraging people for months and months on end to you know believe this lie, if you were even after the insurrection on January 6th, you were still trying to make excuses for it or change what it actually was, then it's difficult for me to, it, not difficult, it's not difficult actually, I should take that back. I just don't work with them, I can't. I can't in my soul, mm. I just can't, you know, I love this country so much and I haven't been willing to do many things for this country and to see some people try to destroy it. um, I just can't make myself work with them. It's not, it's just not in my nature. And so at this point, what are you looking at from the House Select Committee and the Justice Department as you're tracking the revelations? Well, I want the truth. I think the most important thing is, is that we need to know who was involved and to what extent. Uh, I think that's the most important thing. I want to know how it happened. I want to know who was encouraging it. I want to know who was supplying it, who was paying for it. And I want to know, you know, what level of coordination and how high did it get. In terms of the DOJ, I want them to take this more serious. You know, it's great that they finally filed a couple, I think it was like 15 or 16 people with insurrection charges. But clearly there was more people involved 
And I want them to take this serious and understand that democracy is actually being threatened by these actions because an insurrection that is not properly prosecuted, it's just a test run. I was not surprised that more Latino voters voted for President Trump when he ran for re-election. Same for Black voters. How do you think the party should message to Latino voters in the midterms? Incumbents always do better with uh, minority uh, voters, especially Black and Latino voters. So that wasn't a shock. But I think what does matter is how you message them all the time. And I think the most important thing is we need to be messaging Latino voters as really separate from every other democratic base. And we should really invest in them and invest in them in a way that we actually know what they uh, care about. And if we do that, that's how you get Latinos back. And, you know, of course, Latinos, as well as Black Americans, as well as immigrants are overrepresented in the military. And as a combat <laughs> veteran yeah, and a member of Congress, you have worked on veterans affairs and global security in addition to serving the nation in combat in what sounds like a very wrenching situation, watching so many other members of your teams die. But here you are, you're in Congress. What's top of mind for you about how America serves veterans and uh, current members of the military? When I got shipped to Iraq, I got my papers and I was in Iraq uh, within three months, right? And mm-hmm. uh, fighting it out and then back to the United States within seven months. And as soon as I got back, they basically, as reservists, they, they kicked us out, right? I was, you know, suffering some very severe PTSD and uh, going to the VA at that point, it was awful. Uh, I didn't get treated properly. I got denied services because I didn't have the right paperwork. Uh, and, uh, you know, it made me feel as if maybe I was undeserving of help and maybe I was just being soft. And uh, I carry that to this day. Uh, you know, now that I'm here and I at least get to help make decisions, I remember how I was treated by uh, the Marines when I was enlisted. I remember how I was treated back in the day when I first tried to get uh, help uh, for PTSD. And um, I bring that knowledge to the VA subcommittee. I bring actual war fighting and what the effects are to the Armed Services Committee. Because when everyone wants to talk about war and, and planning, they think about, you know, generals and what they're doing. But they really don't think about, you know, the 18, 19-year-old scared infantryman that's, you know, really the first person actually do, that, that does all these major operations. And mm-hmm. I'm the person that thinks about that, that person. What do you think, since you are someone who also has been mapping the shifting geopolitical order, what do you want to see the U.S. do regarding Ukraine? What do you want to see happen? Well, what do I want to see? Uh, Number one, I want to see free and independent Ukraine. And I don't think it's appropriate for us or any other free independent country to ask a democratic elected country to seek peace by giving up their sovereignty. We don't have a right to do that. It's just something that I just can't imagine that we ask another country to do. Does it mean that we have to actually send troops? No, I think at this point, Ukraine has proven itself that it can uh, defend itself if we you know, give them the, the weapons that they need to defend themselves. And I think that is something that the American public is aligned with. What I don't think they're aligned with is for us to get you know, men and women involved. And look, I would be very hesitant to do that. I've been very supportive of Ukraine and and, uh, you know, helping Ukraine create deterrence and now fight back. But I just cannot commit more men and women to a war 
that I don't necessarily think, like, the, number one, I don't think the American public is with, and number two, uh, that uh, would be in our largest interest, especially in trying to prevent an overall large-scale war directly with Russia. That's U.S. Representative Ruben Gallego of Arizona's 7th Congressional District. Coming up next, more of our conversation with Representative Gallego, including his reaction to the Buffalo mass shooting. Plus, sipping the political tea with two veteran journalists based out of Buffalo, New York. Rod Watson, Buffalo News columnist and urban affairs editor, and broadcaster and entrepreneur Sandy White. That's on Our Body Politic. Welcome back to Our Body Politic. If you're just tuning in, we're continuing our conversation with Arizona Democratic Congressman Ruben Gallego, representative for Arizona's 7th Congressional District, which includes Phoenix and the western suburbs. Representative Gallego's state contains hundreds of miles of U.S.-Mexico border. There's been plenty of racial rhetoric around immigration, including some that has inspired violence like the racial shooting of Latinos by a white supremacist in El Paso in 2019. So I asked about his perspective on this latest attack. I do want to ask about the racial killings in Buffalo, which, you know, obviously are part of what in many cases seems to be escalating extremist violence and could continue to escalate with some of the rhetoric and some of the mobilization among people Mm -hmm. who hold certain views and certain theories. What do you want to see the federal government do about racial and anti-immigrant violence, about weaponized xenophobia? Well, look, we need to treat it as a serious threat to our national security, and it is. The way that we actually fund terrorism and terrorism prevention in this country it's actually 90% foreign terrorism, foreign-based terrorism, foreign-encouraged uh, terrorism, and 10% domestic terrorism, when in fact it needs to be flipped. Mm. Our biggest threat as a country, an existential threat, is domestic terrorism. And when you know Black people are targeted because of who they are, uh, and, and unfortunately, the Black community is, is too used to that, but in the way that they've been targeted by violence, again, because this happened in Atlanta before, let's not forget, we need to deal with that. The Latino community also was targeted in the same way in El Paso, where, mm-hmm. you know, this white supremacist chose the most Latino area of the state, drove to it and, and drove into Walmart and tried to kill as many Latinos uh, as possible. And the only way we actually start dealing with that is if we actually deal and treat it as a real threat. You're not just targeting Latinos. You're not just targeting black families. You're actually targeting the American way of life. People should be able to be who they are without being threatened by terroristic violence. And lastly, the politicians need to understand the power of their words. Mm. It's not a coincidence that both men that attacked in El Paso, that attacked in Buffalo, are using political speak that is being echoed by the Republican Party right now. Not the whole Republican Party, to give them credit. But some of the leadership within the Republican Party, the top leadership Republican Party, at least Stefanik, some that I went to college with, mm. uh, is using that those words right now of replacement theory, telling people that you know Democrats and liberals, quote unquote, are trying to replace you know white voters with you know Latino voters. And in Buffalo, the the, the terrorists you know said that black voters were replacing uh, white voters. That's dangerous because those words 
matter. They don't rise to the the problem of someone actually bringing uh, a weapon and loading a weapon, but you're loading that person's mind with hatred. And when politicians speak that way, it validates it. And trust me, I, I remember growing, you know, being in Arizona in 2010. Yep. I had been back from Iraq for about five years and, you know, walking around in my, you know, Iraq, Afghanistan veteran hat and, or, you know, something, I would still be told, go back to Mexico. Mm-hmm. You know, I was never born in Mexico. <laughs> when you have, you know, a major political party just trying to stoke up division, it has ramifications. And these Republican politicians, these leaders, I should say again, use race to stoke up a certain voter. In the process, they actually stoke up these, you know, terrorists that attack black and brown communities. In 2010, I interviewed Sheriff Joe Arpaio, among others. And and of course, you represent Arizona's 7th Congressional District in the Phoenix area, you know, including Maricopa County. And Sheriff Joe Arpaio was convicted of civil rights violation for racially profiling, particularly Latinos, later became President Trump's first pardon. And during this same project, we also spoke with Sheriff Tony Estrada, Mm -hmm. who had a completely different view of the U.S.-Mexico border. But for me, those interviews in 2010 gave me a bead on the way that the U.S.-Mexico border would be a national issue, one that could be weaponized. And now you're seeing people, including the shooter in Buffalo, citing replacement theory about immigration. So how do you as a congressman talk to your constituents about the border and about what used to be considered fringe theories like replacement theories, but that have been gaining in steam? As someone that's lived in Arizona now for 17 years and and just being Latino, I know of replacement theory. It's fringe for the majority of the country, but it's not fringe for, I would say, a significant number of Republican politicians. Sheriff Joe Arpaio was not the first, and nor was he uh, the last. In Arizona, it's easier to talk about the border because it's not theoretical, right? Arizonans see the border as many things, and one of them is definitely an opportunity. You can cross the border, go visit family, go, you know, start businesses and vice versa, by the way. People forget that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mexicans also have a lot of businesses in the United States. But we also aren't naive that there are problems at the border. And there's certainly no way we cannot deny it. There are still obviously people crossing the, the border illegally. And there are ways that we should take care of that in a very sane manner that doesn't involve race and invoking race, which is what you see a lot of Republicans do. We have to talk about the complexity about the border, about how we do need more sane enforcement that doesn't violate people's uh, individual rights, while at the same time, we have some compassion for those that are coming over and asking for asylum that truly deserve it, and also trying to figure out how to bring people here legally that we need for our workforces. And then lastly, what to do with the 8 to 11 million immigrants in this country that are here illegally, but have you know started families, started businesses, own homes that uh, want to stay here. And we should try to find a way to legalize them without punishing them for going through the normal process. There's, it's a very complex thing, but nobody wants to talk about this complexity and the nuance, but it does matter and it does exist. One last question, and that we ask this of a lot of our guests. We talk about a lot of heavy stuff on this show, and this was no exception, but what gives you joy? Well, I love mornings with my family. Mm. Like, uh, I have a crazy dog. Uh, <laughs> I have an uh, amazing son. And, um, you know, in the mornings, the crazy dog and my son, they all crawl into bed, and 
we spend a good 30 to 40 minutes just being in bed and, and either sleeping more or just talking more. It's very fulfilling. That sounds like a little slice of the American dream right there. <laughs> yeah, it is. Representative Gallego, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for your time. That's U.S. Representative Ruben Gallego of Arizona's 7th Congressional District. And now we're going to bring you more of the Our Body Politic Presents series, stories and conversations from independent voices in audio. This week, we have highlights from the podcast Getting Even with Anita Hill. Hill talks with legal scholar Kimberly Crenshaw, who coined the term critical race theory, about its origins in the halls of academia and its original intent. The white supremacist who killed 10 people in Buffalo cited not only replacement theory, but critical race theory, or CRT, as something that motivated him. What's being called CRT in today's culture wars isn't actually CRT, but that doesn't matter when people are being incited to violence. The push to use terms like CRT as weapons has real-world consequences. So now let's hear from the scholar Kimberly Crenshaw, who coined the term, again, in conversation with Anita Hill. Just like you cross intersections and there's traffic moving north and south and east and west, Black women have been impacted by the combination of race traffic, gender traffic. So that's where intersectionality came from. That's legal scholar and professor Kimberly Crenshaw. When she introduced the concept of intersectionality in the late 1980s, Crenshaw was underlining the ways that race and gender discrimination converge. As a student, she saw how laws that address race and gender separately failed to deliver justice to those at the intersections. But intersectionality isn't the only phrase that Kimberly Crenshaw has coined. Crenshaw is one of the handful of legal scholars who originated and developed critical race theory. In layman's terms, I would describe it as the study of how law consistently supports institutionalized forms of racial inequality. Like intersectionality, critical race theory was originally developed to unpack issues of identity and status in our justice system. And like intersectionality, critical race theory has become a household phrase. It's also become a cornerstone for a national attack on education. It's used to shut down any additions to the curriculum taught in American public schools, which would more accurately reflect our nation's history. I'm Anita Hill. This is Getting Even, my podcast about equality and what it takes to get there. I'll be speaking with people who are improving our imperfect world, people who took risks and broke the rules. In this episode, I'm talking with Kimberly Crenshaw about critical race theory. Crenshaw and I have known each other since the 1980s. I think people need to know that at the time, Anita, there was just a handful of Black women law professors. We all either knew each other or knew of each other. We could all get in a minivan. (laughs) (laughs) If we had a lunch meeting, you know, we just need one table, right? Yes. Crenshaw and I both found that our formal education lacked teaching about race, racism, and the law. For Crenshaw, that meant creating the theories that were missing, writing them herself. 
we like to think of critical race theory not so much of a thing, but of a way of viewing a thing, a way of viewing what we think race is, a way of understanding why it is utterly predictable, who's most likely to be the CEO and who's most likely to be the person cleaning the CEO's office. Race is still a primary factor in determining access to the good things in life. As long as race is a predictive factor, we would want to understand, well, how does it happen 50 years after Brown versus Board of Education, after the Civil Rights Act of 64 and 65? Why do we still have these problems? Critical race theory attempts to ask those questions and provide some answers from the vantage point of the law. We didn't know it was called critical race theory, but we started the thinking as a way of understanding why when we arrived at Harvard Law School, we saw ourselves as advancing the cause of racial justice through learning how to be good lawyers And we got there and found that there really weren't any courses that were dedicated to sharing the knowledge about how to do that. When you get to a place and you know something is missing, you know it's needed, you all were inspired to do something about it. Yeah. We were coming so inspired by what had happened during the first 15 years of the civil rights movement. We thought, of course, it's going to continue, right? These Mm -hmm. are the new lunch Mm -hmm. counters. And we got there, Anita, just as the Supreme Court was beginning to push back and beginning to say, we're at the end of the road. We've done all the reform that's necessary. So telling us why there wasn't more coming became the text that we were reading and critiquing, and that critique became critical race theory. This was a conversation happening mostly inside law schools, and not even in all law schools at that. Yeah. People started reading it in political science in sociology, in American studies, in cultural studies. That's where it existed until like last year. Evidence of that is the extent to which it was challenging for people to think about race and racial power outside of the framework of an individually biased person. So there was sort of a a bipartisan discomfort with some of the core ideas in critical race theory, where race does not go away because you don't name it. Racism is not something that you can solve by being colorblind. My analogy has always been, we realized that we built our institutions with, with toxic material like asbestos. We don't think the solution to brown lung disease is to not notice that the asbestos is there, not use the word or terminology asbestos, and to criticize those experts who can tell you where the asbestos is tucked away in our institutions. We would never do that. Yet, we've done that with race and racism. Can you talk about how your early education got you to thinking about race, gender, and the law? Mm. Well, you know, Anita, it's not even my early education. It's sitting at the dinner table. My mother was what we might call a race woman of the 20th century. She was born and raised in Canton, Ohio, 
And partly because her father was the town's physician, they weren't constrained by concerns that many other folks had to worry about. The way that segregation was reinforced in the North was through economic punishment. And because they relied on the Black community for their livelihood, they were freer to demand certain rights. I was raised in the town that she grew up in. The history was built in the geography. Everywhere we went, that was the place that didn't want to serve us at the counter. That was the movie theater that didn't want to let us sit where we wanted to sit. So a a lot of my childhood was trying to navigate how to think about this thing that happens, this thing called racism. So going to school was a process of trying to figure out, well, why aren't we talking about this? One of the strategies that has been much discussed is to raise precisely that argument that Brown versus Board and the entire legacy of that monumental case was that democracy requires equitable educational opportunity. It doesn't end with just segregation. It includes the content of education. It includes saying that there's only one story that is the permissible official story of America. We cannot have an equal citizenry when we're not willing to tell the full story of when our society embraced inequality and what the echoes of that embrace continue to be. The 14th Amendment does embody a value, and these laws undermine that value. That's what we need to be able to teach our our young people. That's what we need to be able to say to ourselves and to our elected officials. And that's what we should hold them uh, accountable to, that value that was fought and died for, that value that was resuscitated in mid-20th century, and that value that has to rise again if we're to save this country. Kimberly Crenshaw's work has helped move us to a more equitable world. If we limit critical thinking about inequalities, we will pass problems of racism on to our children. Crenshaw's words are an urgent call to action because learning the truth is how we can equip the next generation with the tools they need to reach equality. That was an excerpt from the Pushkin Industries podcast, Getting Even with Anita Hill. And you can hear more episodes wherever you get your podcast. Coming up next, our weekly roundtable, Sipping the Political Tea, here's from Buffalo-based journalist. We've got broadcaster Sandy White and Buffalo News columnist Rod Watson. You're listening to Our Body Politic. Welcome back to Our Body Politic. Each week on the show, we bring you a roundtable called Sippin' the Political Tea. Joining me this week is Buffalo News columnist and urban affairs editor Rod Watson. Thanks for joining us, Rod. Thank you. And we also have veteran Buffalo broadcaster, longtime resident and entrepreneur Sandy White. Welcome, Sandy. Happy to be with you. You know, it just makes me so grateful to have you both with us this past 
Saturday, a white supremacist traveled about 200 miles to target people at the top supermarket in a majority black neighborhood in Buffalo, and he murdered 10 people and injured three before surrendering to the police. Before we talk about this explicitly racial killing, let's talk about Buffalo and about being black in the western New York area. Rod, I know that you have been a member of and covered this community for three decades. Let's just start out by asking what the Buffalo community means to you and and what you see with the black community in Buffalo. I see the black community in Buffalo and Buffalo as a whole is kind of a a microcosm of the United States. Uh, The same racial and social economic problems we have here in Buffalo, I think you'll find in any urban city and the lack of progress on those problems, dealing with those problems here in Buffalo probably mirrors the lack of progress in dealing with those issues across the country, which is why we have the conditions that we have, and it just doesn't seem to be the willingness to deal with those problems. For a long time, African Americans have been told and have fervently believed that, you know, your vote is your voice, uh, getting to the ballot box and electing people from the community, people who uh, know what the community needs, that that was the solution. And yet uh, we've had a black mayor, the first black mayor here in Buffalo, was elected in 2005. Last November, he was uh, just reelected to his un- an unprecedented fifth term. And during that tenure of 16 years now, going into his 17th year, uh, conditions have not really improved that much in terms of infrastructure, in terms of education, in terms of housing, in terms of employment. If the people from the community who supposedly look like you and understand those problems the way that you do, if they don't work to change them, then what is the answer? And I think there's a lot of frustration we're feeling right now around that. And this is just, the shooting has served to highlight that frustration that's been bubbling up for years. It's definitely true. I mean, you see it in cities all the, across America, like my hometown, Baltimore, you know, like the community I lived in for 10 years in Crown Heights, Brooklyn. Let's turn to this shooting. How does it frame up the importance of issues that you have been covering for years. I think it was really telling that this shooter picked this particular neighborhood in this particular city. According to the online documents that people have been researching, he uh, looked at a lot of other areas between here and his hometown. Uh, Buffalo was about 33, 34% African-American. He looked at Rochester, which is about 50, 60 miles away. It actually has a little bit higher percentage of African-Americans. But uh, Buffalo, the African-American community, is more concentrated in a small area, so that's why he targeted this area, and particularly this neighborhood. It goes back to the whole, what I call the sense of otherness. There's this sense that white people in this country are feeling under siege, and even though they dominate in every major profession, they control the levers of power. And yet there's this sense that you know, blacks, Hispanics, other people of color are taking over. And that's what's driving us, the sense of otherness. We can see that right now in the sort of backlash against the so-called um, critical race theory, which isn't even taught in high school, but, you know, it doesn't seem to matter. Facts don't matter anymore. Mm-hmm. But if we had an accurate teaching of history in our schools, I think that would do a lot to dispel these kinds of myths about people of color. Uh, you look at the... Uh, social economic statistics, or you look at gaps in wealth, the gaps in income, the gaps in educational attainment, uh, the gaps in employment, and it's easy for whites who have been acculturated 
by some of the uh, right-wing news outlets to look at that kind of data and say, oh, okay, there must be something wrong with those people. Those people are dragging us down. Those people are the problem. And yet they can feel that way because we've, we've never done a good job of teaching how those conditions arose. They didn't arise by accident. They arose based on systemic policies that were implemented throughout this nation's history. And you don't even have to go back to the slave trade to talk about it. Obviously, that's where it began, but you can just go back to the post-World War II era when um, New Deal programs were implemented and the suburbs were built up and the way those programs were implemented to deliberately shut out and exclude African Americans. And so when you look at what's happening today, the descendants of the people back in the 40s, they were given a leg up in terms of education, in terms of housing loans, and while blacks were redlined out of those opportunities. And so now when you look at things today, a white person, a white uh, young person today wants to open a business. The wealth that was created back then, if he can't get a business loan, he can go to Uncle Joe, he can go to Aunt Tilly, or he can go to Grandma or Grandpa because they were allowed to accumulate that wealth back then. Whereas a black person today who wants to open a business and can't get a business loan, he doesn't have that to fall back on because of the systemic policies. The way they were implemented back then means that there was no uh, groundwork to accumulate that wealth that could be passed on for generation to generation. And yet most of us don't understand that today. And so when we look at the inequities, we tend to want to blame the victim without understanding that it was the systemic effort to create those kinds of inequities and pass them down for generation to generation. If young people were taught that today, they would have a whole different attitude, I think, when they see a person of color. Yeah. And I think that would be that would be tremendously important. But there's so much opposition to that. And I don't like to deal in conspiracy theories, but you have to wonder if that opposition is based on the fact that you know, if white students in schools today understood that, then they would be more uh, amenable to change. And change is threatening to a lot of people. There's a lot of food for thought there. Sandy, tell me about the work that you've been doing in Buffalo as a business owner, as a volunteer. And what does your community mean to you? My community means an awful lot to me. Uh, I started out here in Buffalo as a young journalist and moved to Los Angeles and returned. And I returned to be engaged in public service, involved with my community in many different organizations, those that would make impact, those that can transform. And as an entrepreneur, I'm still working in the community on many levels to to make the transformation. And so let's turn to the killing, Sandy. The question is, what does it mean that this happened? And and on a personal level, how has your sense of safety changed since last Saturday? I stayed in bed on Sunday all day and with my cell phone just doing what I could to connect to local and national reporters that were in town to provide information. The irony here is that on Saturday, my production crew, we were out with children at what is called the Freedom Wall. There are gigantic murals that line the street of, uh, from W.E.B. Du Bois to Dr. King to Malcolm so that children could see these gigantic figures of history. But I was a little nervous out there with the children. Uh, so I called the police to make sure that they were aware that we would be out there. I had no idea that three hours later we would hear about the carnage blocks away. 
You are listening to Sippin' the Political Tea on Our Body Politic. I am Farai Chidea, and this week we are speaking to voices from the black community in Buffalo, specifically two journalists, people with roots in the community, Rod Watson, Buffalo News columnist and urban affairs editor, and Sandy White, a veteran Buffalo broadcaster, longtime resident, and entrepreneur. Sandy, what impact is this mass violence having on the community? And and frankly, how are people processing this level of racial hatred? I think what's happening in Buffalo, there are people like myself doing what we can wherever we are to help to reach out to the deceased families. And um, it's it's really tough. Yeah, families that might not even be in the area anymore, I'm guessing, too. People who've, you know, whose kids moved away and and things like that. Well, Buffalo is, you know, it's like a a lot of northeastern cities, so it's in a we had a certain amount of uh, brain drain, that's the way I term it, uh, where the, the bright African-Americans, those that with drive and desire, they left because of the racism that existed in the city. And uh, they knew they couldn't find a, a job here. So they went down to Atlanta and to Charlotte and to maybe Maryland and different parts of the country because they knew. Many of my friends knew. They just couldn't make it in Buffalo. Mm. There would not be an opportunity. And so what we have here is, uh, like Rod said, a microcosm of what has happened across the country and is happening on a regular basis. So people are like, how could this happen? People walk and shake your hand and smile every day, and you don't know their hearts. And it's really made me think again about who I'm talking to and who I'm dealing with. So, Sandy, you know, I've covered white supremacist and white nationalist as part of my career for 25 years, and I found myself just very frustrated with newsrooms that would not take domestic terrorism seriously. It was like, oh, no, that's just a fringe, et cetera. I'm like, the fringe is building a movement right under your noses, and so— I guess what I would say is that I'm I'm not surprised that we've reached this point in history. It obviously is horrific, but I also feel like it's part of my work to do, to be part of trying to cover this. And that does give me some sense of purpose. And I do have I do have faith that we can make a difference. It's just that if we had only done more, say, five years ago or 10 years ago, we wouldn't be here right now. You and Rod both have extensive histories in news and in community. And we saw certain news organizations like the Associated Press refer to the 18-year-old gunman who shot and killed so many people as a teenager. But the AP referred to 18-year-old Michael Brown, who was shot and killed by the Ferguson, Missouri police in 2014 as a man. How does the media cover black victims and killers differently than white victims and killers? Well, if you look at history, this is nothing new, right? Uh, There were men and women that were lynched in the earlier part of the last century for just walking out the door and and tipping their hats and saying hello. Uh, But the media played a key role in fanning the flames and infuriating those that did not want to see the blacks that were moving from the South 
to the north. There was one central underpinning, and that's fear. So fear is being fed and being digested by the nation. And what is a result, especially if you get it every evening and certain cable channels, people think differently about groups and they're more fearful. And then there's policy that's put in place that basically puts people in certain groups and certain neighborhoods without resources. There are people that are actually in power that know what they're doing and they're taking steps to divide this nation. And Rod, you wrote this recent Buffalo News column um, that really stuck with me. And, and I would just love it if you could read a little bit of it for us. Sure. Part of the column dealt with what Sandy was just talking about, the fear that's being stoked and the uh also, you know, the issue of guns, a lot of people think guns will protect them. But uh, part of the column said that uh, a sidearm can't stop hate. A handgun cannot shoot racist rhetoric. There is no bullet that will penetrate the demented ideology that makes every person of color an other. There is no armed self-defense against the warped idea of Americanism that filters down from politicians and talk show hosts to bring latent hatred to the surface with deadly consequences. And I was, you know, trying to get at what Sandy was talking about when she mentioned some of the networks that, you know, specifically peddle in this kind of hatred and this kind of creating this sense of otherness. They are less than, they are threatening, they are coming to take your country. And, you know, except for Native Americans, we're all immigrants, except for some of us, it was forced immigration, it wasn't uh, by choice. But we're all immigrants. And so uh, this sense of otherness that they're trying to create and perpetuate is really behind a lot of this. So, will anything change as a result of this? I don't know. Your guess is as good as mine. I mean, how many will it take? I mean, in other cases, nothing's changed. Will it change this time? I don't know. But I think one thing that, one positive perhaps that will come out of this, particularly here in Buffalo, is it's highlighted, you know, the disparities and the lack of opportunity in black neighborhoods. The, um, Maston District, where the Tops Market is located, Buffalo is divided into nine council districts. Uh, the Maston District, where the Tops Market is located, is the heaviest African-American uh, district in the city. It's 82% black. It has a poverty rate of astounding uh, 35.6%. Wow. And that's, that's, you know, one of the poorest parts of one of America's poorest cities. Uh, and so... I think the closing of the market as a result of the shooting just sort of put a spotlight on the lack of opportunity and the lack of resources that have been put into this community over the years, despite the fact that our mayor, Byron Brown, actually is from this neighborhood. He represented the Maston District when he was a common council member. And yet, nothing has changed. But that's what happens in a city like this, where resources are uh, devoted to the waterfront. Uh, we've got a Build up a thriving medical campus, a thriving waterfront, a downtown area. And Buffalo has gotten a lot of positive publicity in the last few years because of those developments. And yet, if you talk to the people in the African American neighborhood around the Tops Market, it has not reached them. Sandy, you've been very active in the Buffalo community on so many levels. How do you react to the questions about leadership? Well, when we talk about leadership, we can say a lot could have been done. And a lot is 
taking place. And there are major projects like the Northland Workforce Training Center, for example, where lives are being transformed. But getting that word out in this world of media where things are just passed around very quickly and then it's dismissed, it's very difficult. But the Workforce Training Center in Northland is a phenomenal project and the mayor led that project. And I think he wants to do even more. Uh, he sees some of the problems that have existed. He realizes more could have been done and will be done from what I understand. But to take a, a brush and say nothing has been done would be inaccurate. We're working together to get it right. Thank you, Sandy. Thank you, Rod. Well, thank you for spotlighting these issues. That was Rod Watson, Buffalo News columnist and urban affairs editor, and Sandy White, veteran Buffalo broadcaster, longtime resident and entrepreneur. Thanks for listening to Our Body Politic. We're on the air each week and everywhere you listen to podcasts. Our Body Politic is produced by Diaspora Farms. I'm the executive producer and host, Farai Chidea. Our co-executive producer is Jonathan Blakely. Bianca Martin is our senior producer. Bridget McAllister is our booker and producer. Emily J. Daly and Steve Lack are our producers. Natina Bean and Emily Ho are our associate producers. Production and editing services are by Clean Cuts at Three Cs. Today's episode was produced with the help of Lauren Schild and engineered by Archie Moore. I want to thank the full team at the podcast Getting Even, written and hosted by Anita Hill. It is produced by Mola Board and Brittany Brown with editor Sarah Kramer, engineer Amanda K. Wang, and showrunner Sasha Mathias. The executive producers are Mia Lobel and Letal Malad. The podcast is a production of Pushkin Industries. This program is produced with support from the Ford Foundation, Craig Newmark Philanthropies, the Charles and Lynn Schusterman Family Philanthropies, Democracy Fund, the Harnish Foundation, Compton Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, the Be Me Community, Katie McGrath and J.J. Abrams Family Foundation, and from generous contributions from listeners like you.